when my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where today we are looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm going to read a little bit from my forthcoming book, Post Traumatic Jesus. Um, this is a book I've worked on for years. The early pandemic kind of brought the need for it to the fore, and I started trying to get it published, and that wasn't easy. Um, but eventually, it has been accepted and about to launch into the world in just a few weeks through Westminster John Knox Press. And I want to read a little bit from it, as it is about this very text of scripture. But first, the scripture. A reading from the Gospel according to Matthew. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Gospel of the Lord. Without our post-traumatic lens, the Sermon on the Mount could be called the serum on the Mount or the cliche on the Mount. Reading Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 1 through 11, as we just did, from a well-heated or air-conditioned apartment in 2023 makes the sermon sound like good advice from a tech executive or a tech bro trying to enhance your performance in the boardroom or the bedroom. Be humble. Be sensitive. You'll thank me for this. No, to traumatize people, these words meet us where we are. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It only resonates with those who are already poor in spirit. Jesus is not calling for a mood dump or for our comfortable followers to get poor. He is not calling for us to go on a silent retreat or ladle potato salad at the homeless shelter. No, Jesus' listeners already are poor in spirit, beat down by the systemic oppression of Rome and the internal poverty of a silent and absent God. Poverty of spirit, the empty spiritual bank account, comes from having it beat out of us. We know we are poor in spirit. We wander out into the dark night. We stare at the silent stars and whisper, Fuck you, man because we cannot summon the breath to shout it. It is Job, 
this close to cursing God and dying. If we had the strength to accuse God with force, we would do it, but we cannot. All we can do is weep when we think of how short the child's life was or how we should have known better. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, Jesus is not saying everyone should take up their mourning clothes and start wailing. His listeners already are. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The offer the devil made to Jesus in his temptation was just this, but by another way. Bow down and worship me, he says, and you shall inherit the earth. No, the meekness here is the downcast eyes of the victims who have no control over their bodily integrity. They await another strike, another blow, another wound. This is not a strong man being humble. This is all humanity, buckled and crumpled at the feet of overwhelming pain. The meek cannot inherit anything. They can only lose a little more. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. They are merciful. They will receive mercy. They are pure in heart. They will see God. What is good and holy in them is forged in fire, in the crucible of existence on a planet that shows no mercy. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake have looked into the abyss, and the abyss has looked back into them. They have seen the horror, the shock, the awe, the banality of evil. They no longer have illusions about things progressing, getting better, turning out right in the end. All they have is God, a post-traumatic God, who is revealed in the humanity of God's post-traumatic Son, who is down here in the shit with us. The Sermon on the Mount is not aspirational. It does not set an agenda or a new code of conduct to make us behave better. The Sermon on the Mount simply describes what it looks like to follow a post-traumatic Jesus. Ultimately, Christians follow a person, and that person bears in his body the marks of his trauma, the marks of the world's trauma. This does not mean we must suffer trauma in order to follow Jesus, All of us suffer from the trauma of the world, either firsthand or secondhand, and so we best understand this teaching through that post-traumatic lens. The final line of Jesus' introductory poem is, Blessed are you when people revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. This is exactly what happens to Jesus in the final days of his life. As he hangs between earth and sky, his enemies spit on him, mocking his powerlessness. He is, by every definition, persecuted. The Greek word translated persecute literally means to chase, to pursue. Perhaps hounded or hunted fits the context better here. As Jesus' followers hide in latrines in hopes their pursuers pass them by for the stench, they experience this blessing. After all, Jesus knows what he's talking about. No doubt his mother told him about being hunted by Herod in his infancy. Narratives of being hunted abound in the biographies of the traumatized warlords of the earth. Timogen, better known as Genghis Khan, was hunted by his enemies as a child. His harrowing escape forged in him a steely revenge he exacted in the blood of his pursuers when he finally came of age. But the hunted Christmas child takes a different path. He loves his enemies and boldly declares his followers will do this too. 
His love flows not from a charmed childhood, but from a violent one. The life he calls us to has no illusions of safety or tranquility. His invitation is to come and die. The power of the Sermon on the Mount is that it presents something so absurd to most people that that it usually uh, goes right under our heads, if you will. Um, the Sermon on the Mount goes to our heart, and especially to the hearts of people who have experienced trauma and traumatic events and events that have turned their life upside down. I hope that message gets across in this book. Um, that's one thing I really hope people can connect their experiences of trauma, war, abuse, suffering with the stories of Jesus and the Gospels. And I think the Sermon on the Mount really does this. To the people that were listening, I think they would have had a more visceral um, connection to it because the signs and symbols of their oppression was all around them. Today, we mask it quite well. We live in a world that creates illusions so easily. We hear of horrible events, um, but they are very distant and they are filtered um, in really profound ways. There's something about hearing a story firsthand of someone that witnessed something, and that's how information was spread. Now we kind of see it, and that seeing of it is, um, is me- mediates it somewhat and softens it, um, even when we think we're seeing the real thing. Witnessing the um, traumatic events of this world does cause people to question the goodness of God, does cause people to question the goodness of themselves and their fellow humans. And this is the tension I think I find in Holy Scripture, that God made us good, all the creation is good, and yet the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, or the man and the woman, whoever you tell that story from the accounts in Genesis, points to something really terrible happening that twists everything. So there is this deep goodness in us and in the world. And we have to remember that when we're going through difficult times, when we feel like shit, when we feel like we're our lives are over. We have to remember that we are good, essentially good, but that all the stuff around us somehow can change our perception of our own goodness and the, and the God that has called us into relationship. And so when Jesus is talking to us in these texts, he's connecting to us at, when we're vulnerable, when we're able to see around us a possibility of our own reality, which is one of a traumatized and troubled world. I think about the visions of masculinity that are presented to young men today and to women as well of what they should look for. And I think um, I'm stereotyping in a very general way, but I think women are more perceptive about what kind, what, what makes a man good, uh, what makes someone worthy of being in connection with and makes, uh, makes them safe. I think because of the safety factor for women in relationships, they've had to be more perceptive as a survival mechanism for their own safety as the violence against women by men is 
well-documented. Um, it is truly the most dangerous, um, place to be. That's why, um, many have, many women have reminded us over the years that the most dangerous, the, the thing they're thinking about when they go on a date is, will I die? Um, men are thinking, will I have a good time? Will I meet someone that I love or something like that? Um, whereas women are really thinking about their own safety and survival. And that's why um, assuring someone of safety by our actions and character is the basis of trust in, in all relationships, whether it's at work um, or, or in social life as well. And so men are less perceptive of what um, what a man should be, especially young men. I remember growing up and wondering, well, how was I going to be a man in this world? What was I going to do to prove myself? Joining the Marines was one of those ways I thought would help me be a man. And, and I would be tough and strong and brave, um, which certainly the military has a way of instilling some of that in a person. But ultimately, our character doesn't come from those kinds of experiences, but I thought maybe it would work for me. I still had to face the real challenges of manhood, of personhood, um, that every human being has to face. And the stuff I experienced in the military in some ways helped me with that, and in other ways it held me back because some of that false bravado and invulnerability um, ultimately wasn't good for me. Um, especially when it came to um, the quest for love that we are all on in life. Um, how, do we, how do we experience love in this world, connection, trust, safety, um, all those things? Um, sometimes the invulnerability and bravado of military culture can inhibit us in that. But young men are wondering what makes a man, and I think the Sermon on the Mount speaks to men as much as it speaks to anyone else. Um, certainly it is a universal message to humanity as both men and women attended Jesus' sermons. Um, and certainly um, gender binaries are the default setting in scripture um, as they still are in modern culture. But we must remember that um, people in Jesus' day had a wide range of understandings of their own gender, whether they talked about it a lot or not. I think people's internal experience of their gender is really the uh, universal throughout history. And you can see that in many, many, many accounts of people's um, inner lives throughout history that this rigid construction of the gender binary of male and female is certainly um, not the only way that people have seen themselves over the millennia. And if you, question, if you wonder about this, um, there's lots of great resources in print and on the internet about... Um, um, how people experience gender throughout the ages. Um, not so, not, not always the way we might think about the past. Always good to, to look into that. But um, I, as a thought experiment, I like to read the Sermon on the Mount through the, the voice of a bro influencer or a man influencer. Um, there are so many voices speaking to our men. Joe Rogan, uh, the now arrested Andrew Tate, um, many other men speaking to young men and men that are their own age, telling them what it means to be a man, to take what they want, to express power and wealth so that women are attracted to you, high-value women. This is the language of this 
movement, um, which ultimately leads to more alienation and more distance. I like to think of the Beatitudes being read in their voice, sort of like a deep fake video or something where they kind of say these words. And could they say these words? Um, I think the Sermon on the Mount is a litmus test for real authenticity when it comes to what a man is or what a human being is, really. If you can get up and say this stuff, unironically, just say it. I think you have kept, I think the ability to do that means that, that, that the normal or the default setting of the quest for manhood is shattered with the Sermon on the Mount. That the, the idea of being the strongest, the toughest, the bravest, the, the most invulnerable, um, the wealthiest, all of these things um, are not what Jesus is calling his followers to be and not what his followers are. His followers are like this. They are like the people he describes in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And so any attempt at what is a man, the quest for manhood, should be read through the lens of the Sermon on the Mount. And if you can't do that, especially the Beatitudes, then I think the claims of being a Christian fall flat. If a person can't align themselves with the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, then I think um, they shouldn't probably call themselves a Christian. And yet so many do. So many um, of these influencers who are trying to um, appeal to young men's fears that women are taking over the world, that feminists are going to destroy them, that it's hard to be a man, it's nearly impossible to be a man, and that um, you're a persecuted group of people if you're a man, uh, that, all that um, is just shatters when you read the Sermon on the Mount. Because the Sermon on the Mount points to a different vision of humanity, a post-traumatic vision, a vision of vulnerability and love, which Jesus embodies himself. When men are wondering, what is it, what should I do to be a man in this world? Jesus should be the example. And yet he often is not. So many other people crowd into that space and Jesus is crowded out. So if you're a young man or you know a young man who's wondering about this, um, share this with them. I would, I'd love to hear what they thought about what I said. Um, I'm certainly no expert in manhood. Um, my 47-year quest for what it is to be a man has been full of obstacles, roadblocks, and challenges. And I've learned a lot through that, I hope. And I hope I still learn. And what I've learned, I can pass on, I hope. But ultimately, every person has to go on this quest for themselves. Every young man has to go on this quest for themselves. They have to try things and fail and find out that the, the real goodness of life doesn't come through exerting power over other people, of, of trying to figure out ways to coerce people into loving us. Ultimately, that's what those movements seek to do. The way Jesus does is that you're already worthy of love. You're already forgiven. You're already reconciled. And when you fully know that and experience it, you can move through the world with love and grace and truth. You can have all those things that Jesus embodied, that Jesus was. And ultimately, we have the opportunity to give our lives sacrificially for others. And that is what 
manhood is. That is what following Jesus as a man ultimately is, because that's what he did. He is our example. He is our savior. He's our friend. And he offers us eternal life. Amen.